Hello there. Today we'll look at Sparse is Enough in Scaling Transformers by researchers of the University of Warsaw, Google Research, and OpenAI. This paper on a high level proposes a set of building blocks to introduce sparsity into transformers, and this results in an architecture called the Scaling Transformer. In the second half of the paper, they then introduce additional features to the Scaling Transformer uh, to make it into the Terraformer. Both the Scaling Transformer and the Terraformer, they're really fast at what they call unbatched decoding. Decoding is essentially inference in such a transformer model, and unbatched means that they can do this for a single sample. Of course, they're also faster in batched decoding, but I guess the effects are not as pronounced. And we're going to see why, because the sparsity really shines through if you have single examples and can only activate very small parts of the network at the same time. So the effect of all of this, at least for the scaling transformer, is right here. If you have a model with 800 million parameters, I guess today that'd be called a small model, uh, the baseline transformer has a decoding time of about 0.16 seconds. Whereas if you add all the tricks to the scaling transformer, you speed that up by a factor of about 2.6x. That's not that pronounced yet. Yet the effect really shines if you go to bigger models. So if you go to a 17 billion parameter models, the baseline transformer takes about 3.6 seconds uh, on this particular hardware to decode. The Terra, no, sorry, the scaling transformer with all the tricks activated takes about 0.18 seconds, giving a speed up of 20x. And uh, so in different settings on, on different configurations, these speed ups can in fact get even higher. I've seen up to like 37x or something like this, which is quite, quite fast. And this all while the performance doesn't degrade. And that is um, surprising. So they say, surprisingly, the sparse layers are enough to obtain the same perplexity as the standard transformer with the same number of parameters. So they have the same number of parameters. It, it's just that they activate them sparsely when forward propagating, which is much faster and needs much less memory. And this results in the same perplexity when language modeling. So essentially means that the performance is on par. Um, and also they say, if they, if they integrate with prior sparsity approaches, that's where they achieve the terraformer. Uh, they can do fast inference on long sequence, even with limited memory. This results in performance competitive to the state of the art on long text summarization, which is another thing where their model is uh, state of the art or equivalent to state of the art uh, while being much more sparse, much more memory efficient and much faster. So yeah, we'll dive into this. The architecture, it's quite is quite a mess. Like there are engineering tricks, engineering tricks, engineering tricks. Um, and you know, the, the, you have to wonder a little bit, you know, what came first, like which trick came first and which trick necessitated which other trick, but we'll go through the architecture, uh, through all the different pieces and you'll see what this is all about and where the savings are done. All right, if you enjoy content like this, you know, don't hesitate to subscribe. I don't want to do the other YouTubers show the graph. I'll, I'll do like, I'll do this. Here's the graph. 
here's the graph. Uh, so many of you are not subscribed. I mean, look at that. Excellent. All right. So the point with the, the sparsity gains is that um, if you implement them somewhere, then that part is fine. But then another part is still uh, dense and is still the bottleneck. So you kind of have to do, introduce them everywhere. So if we look at a classic transformer model, uh, and they specifically, I think, refer to like the stack of uh, attention is all you need and so on. So what they have basically is they have two attention modules. So there's attention one, I think there's attention two, and then there is this feed forward layer. Okay, so we're going to take care of all of those right here. Attention one is called self attention. So if I have a sequence coming in here, uh, the self attention would be essentially attention in between the elements of the sequence. The second attention block is I think encoder decoder attention or something like this, the, the variants vary a little bit right here, but I would have sort of a second stack of this right here, I would have a input sequence right here. So this would be the input, this would be the target sequence that I'm about to decode. Um, maybe this has some causal attention, who knows. The second layer of attention here is specifically attention that goes to the uh, encoder sequence right here. So it's, it's attention in between the encoder and the decoder and the feed forward. Uh, so this essentially these two mix all the information of the different tokens together. And the feed forward layer simply takes a single embedding of a single single token and feeds it through a feed forward function. So all the tokens are handled by the same feed forward function. Uh, the first thing this paper does is it essentially eliminates the distinguishing between um, the self attention and the attention between uh, encoder and decoder. And I think that makes sense. That's also a lot what a lot of other uh, models do. So famously, BERT is an encoder only model, GPT is a decoder only model. And if I understand them correctly, there as well, they're simply taking the encodings from the source and then just prepending them to the target or something like this, you know, safe to say there are lots of things that one could do right here. Uh, but what I wanted to say is that we now need to replace each of those things with a sparse version. So we need a sparse feed forward. And we also need a sparse attention block. So how are we going to achieve this? First, we're going to the sparse feed forward layer. Remember, a feed forward layer is I have a sequence of embeddings. So that's, these are all vectors. And these are all embedding vectors. This is a sequence of embedding vectors that came out of the attention module, right. And the feed forward layer essentially is a matrix. Um, and I simply pass each of these through a matrix. In fact, it's not one matrix, I think it is usually two matrices, um, one matrix that sort of well, that's not how you draw a matrix. Um, like this, and then like this. Okay, so you kind of blow up the dimension in the middle. And then here, there is a ReLU nonlinearity in between. And the point is what I already said, you'd feed every single 
um, token by itself through this function. So this becomes like a large token. Then there's a ReLU, and then this would become sort of a token of the input dimension again. And you feed this token through as well individually, which give you this one and so on. So in essence, we have a vector, right? A, a token, all the tokens are independent. We have a token and somehow we need to make this sparse. Right now it's a dense multiplication twice. So there's two matrices right here and we have dense multiplication, right? So what do we do? The first thing they say is that, well, given that there's a ReLU nonlinearity right here, right? There's a ReLU. Uh, a lot of the things here essentially are going to end up being zero, right? So it makes sense. It makes sense to do sparsity here. Now, I, I, don't, I don't follow that entirely. Um, you know, I guess half of the stuff will end up being zero, yet the sparsity goes much further. So... But maybe maybe they maybe they justify why they can set some things to zero. Not entirely sure, but I found that reasoning a bit shaky. But here is essentially, you know, you don't need any reason to introduce sparsity if it works. It's good. Um, so here is how it works. First, and this is what I found a bit um, confusing. So it essentially starts on the right, then it goes to the left. But it, it I guess it's easier to start on the left. So what we want to do. I see here is that input vector, right? And here is that first matrix. So the first matrix is of dimension D model, which is the same as this dimension, and DFF, which is the feed forward uh, dimension. And usually I just multiply that together, which would give me a vector in the dimension of the feed forward layer, right? Which I then send through my ReLU. However, however, what I want to do, I want to compartmentalize. I want only certain columns here to be activated, right? So I essentially say, I already accept that a lot of my things in my result are going to be zero because you know they will go to a ReLU anyway. So I'm gonna accept that some of the things will already be zero. So let's say all of these, I already accept they're gonna be zero. I don't even need to calculate the matrix multiplication between the vector here and let's say uh, this column right here. Don't need to do it because after that they will become zero anyway. So who cares? Um, so I'm simply going to decide that some of the things are just going to end up being zero and they justify this by saying, well, there's a ReLU. So some of the things are going to be zero, but more, more. Here is like you know, six out of eight are going to be zero. And now I only need to calculate the remaining columns. And that is the sparsity right here. Um, effectively, they subdivide all of the, they subdivide the whole matrix into these compartments. So we'd have two different compartments right here. And of in each compartment, only one column can be activated at the same time, right? think yeah uh, yeah there's one one of them it's decided on one of them one of them can be activated and only that one needs to be loaded from memory only that one needs to be calculated uh, in, as an inner product with the vector and so the cells here where an actual value is going to be are sparse now the question is how do we decide which ones we're going to activate by the way 
if you can see then for the second matrix, you know, the same thing applies. Um, in fact, I can use that same mask from here. And I can again say, well, num in the first module, uh, column number three was activated here, right? So row number three of this matrix needs to be activated. The other ones don't matter because they're zero anyway. So there's a zero coming in right here, being multiplied with this row. You know, who cares what the result is? The, the input is zero. Actually, well, people care. It's zero, right? <laughs> but it means you don't even need to need to do it. Um, you can simply just load the rows that you are that you know, are potentially non zero. So yeah, how do how do you decide? How do you decide which ones uh, you should load from memory? Essentially, you're, you're simulating you're already pre committing to a relu pattern, right? So this is how you do it. Essentially, you build, you build, you take your input vector right here. And you're trying to somehow see how that works, we somehow come up with a vector of with a binary vector with numbers between like zero and one. So everything right here is like a 0 0.1, 0 0.5, 0 0.3, 0 0.8. So every single entry has a value, every single entry will output like the probability that that particular element should be non zero. And then you simply sample from that distribution and use a straight through Gumball a softmax in order to backpropagate. So they also do a lot of tricks right here. I think they mentioned that um, in the forward propagation, they even sometimes need to do a actually to pass just the softmax output instead of the actual sampling. So there's a lot of engineering tricks to actually get this to work. But safe to say, that's during training, we are we care about inference during inference, you sample exactly one per module that is non zero. Okay, so you have two different um, workflows. The workflow one goes here, decides what needs to be non zero, right. And then given that information, you can do this feed forward layer in a sparse way. But that is all useless if this right here is, um, is not sparse. So this is actually not sparse, but it is low rank. So they say, well, in order to figure out which things need to be non zero, we technically don't need as much information as you know, actually propagating information. Um, so what we can do is we can have a low rank Essentially, it's another feed forward layer, uh, again, doing this blowing up the dimension to the feed forward dimension. Um, but we make it low rank. So instead of instead of wait, yeah, instead of blowing up the dimension in between, we shrink it down, right? You can see right here, we shrink it down to a low dimension. And then we go to the dimension of the feed forward layer. Um, to decide which things are one and zero. And that's a thing you're going to see often in this model, is that they make use of low rank combined with sparsity. Uh, and it's also a bit of a of a trouble that I have because for some things, a low rank approximation is fine. But you know, there's a reason we have dense multiplications everywhere, because sometimes it's not because with a low rank, 
uh, multiplication, you essentially restrict your function space to a very, very small subspace. Um, yeah, but it seems to work. So the trade-off here is that you get to do this sparse, which means that the time it takes decreases and the memory, but you have to, this here, over this, this is new, right? You didn't have to do this before. You could simply do the multiplication. So this is going to add to your compute, while this here is going to be faster. And now it's about whether, whether or not, um, you can make this side sufficiently low rank such that the, the gains over here uh, are more than the time that you have to invest to compute this, max, this mask at the first place over here. Again, for these particular problems that they look at, it seems to be working, right? But these kinds of trade-offs, it's not guaranteed. Like it's not so clear to me that it would you know, just work, um, like it's not it's not straightforward that that trade-off would be positive right here. Uh, there might very well be problems where this rank right here is just too small to carry meaningful information. Um, you need to make it bigger and that would sort of vanish all the savings you make over here. Because these savings are, I mean, essentially linear in the sparsity and this, these gain, sorry, these, these, this right here is essentially linear in the in the low rank dimension. So there's the trade off right there. So they here is how you how you can express this, you can essentially express this as the original multiplication with the first matrix, um, relu through the relu, then times the controller output. And all of that then goes into the second multiplication. That's how you can represent it mathematically. That's not actually what you do, right? Because here you still have the full multiplications uh, with the weight matrices, but it will result in the same thing as this formula. All right, so that is the sparse feed forward layer. And uh, they do show that it, it decreases uh, decoding time quite a bit. And interestingly, it also doesn't degrade uh, performance too much. In fact, you can see right here, this blue line is the average of the baseline models. And if you if you don't go too sparse, um, you still have quite good performance. So this is quite close. Only if you go more sparse, uh, does your perplexity here start to suffer. I think that that is one of the surprising things that there is a level of sparsity you can go at where you're actually considerably faster, while your performance doesn't degrade yet. Again, can very well be because for the problems we look at, the sort of the, the, the they're, they're not difficult enough to really make use of the capacities of the dense models. Okay. So feed forward is done. Now we go to the attention layer. And the attention layer, uh, again, is split up into two parts. In fact, they don't even they don't even really deal with the attention mechanism itself. Um, what they actually care about is in order to do attention, attention is something like I have my queries and my keys and I do an outer product and I normalize by something that I can't remember. 
and then I multiply by my values. Uh, this is the attention formula. And what they care about is how do I get the queries, the keys and the, the values. They, in order to make attention itself sparse or, or, or long range or efficient, they rely on, on different uh, techniques that from other papers. So for example, they will later include the performer and the reformer architectures, uh, which make attention itself uh, sparse or efficient or low dimensional. Um, however, in this particular paper, they care about how do we even get these matrices. And usually, you get Q by multiplying your input um, by a weight matrix like WQ. You get key by multiplying your input by a key weight matrix, and you get V by X. So all of these are dense multiplications. And obviously, they now become the bottleneck. Once we have the sparse feed forward layers, the dense layers in, in the attention um, layers become the bottleneck. The question is, can we use the same trick here as we did before? And the answer they say is no, because the structure of the feed forward layer here was such that it had the relu in between, right? So, and that's why they argue. So naturally, a lot of things are going to end up being zero, which we can exploit by just making, you know, just just a few more things zero, I guess. But they don't they don't want to do this right here, because here, like, none of the things necessarily are going to be zero uh, in the output of these calculations. So the Q or the, the K or the V, they don't have many zero entries. So it might not be justified to go sparse and just say, well, make stuff zero. Um, so what do we do instead? Instead, uh, we look at this diagram here. So on the top, you have what the current attention mechanism looks like. As I said, there is a there is a dense uh, layer essentially in front of each of these three matrices, which is that's how you that's exactly how you get the matrix in the first place, right? We're going to look at a thing which they call a multiplicative layer. So which this is this mult right here, and the multiplicative layer potentially could replace the dense layer. However, they go a step further and they say they, they end up with this architecture right here where they have a multiplicative layer. Then, so one multiplicative layer for all three matrices that is shared and then one convolutional layer for each of the different matrices, which is going to make stuff even faster. And then they also, they drop kind of this... Uh, this dense mechanism right here, and they simply add right here. Again, I like, I'm pretty sure this works right now for these particular problems. Hope like maybe because the problems don't make use of, of the parameters or the original models were just poorly engineered, they didn't they never actually needed all of these, you know, parameters like this one, and uh, we're all fine. This could also be the case. So we have two things to look at inside of the attention model, the multiplicative layer and the conv layers. And these 
kind of go together. And it also goes together with what's usually done in the attention mechanism, which is multi-head attention. So I'll draw a diagram of an attention mechanism uh, for the about 500th time, but you have some sort of a sequence, right? And every sequence, I'll replicate the sequence over here. So uh, every sequence emits what's called a like a query, which is a vector, some vector, which are the queries. And also, every element in the sequence emits a key. So the keys are also some vectors. And the keys are also some vectors. And uh, then routing is done via inner product overlap. So probably these go would be routed together. Um, these two would be routed together. This would probably be routed here. It can also be routed to multiple stuff, but you route essentially via inner product. So that's how you construct the weight matrix or the query key matrix for then multiplying by the values. The idea behind multi-headed attention, which is what's usually done, is that let's not only have one such block, let's actually have many such blocks in parallel, right? And instead of using the entire vectors that are output right here by, for example, that are in Q, Q are these, the queries, right? Q or is a matrix and every row or column, don't exactly remember, is one of these vectors right here. They say, hey, let's instead of, so Q is a matrix, let's say every row, but for, for let's just say every row. If I'm wrong, then, you know, just reimagine. Um, so instead of taking the entire vectors here, like the entire vectors as queries, we split the vectors into, in this case, into three parts. And this first part right here, that becomes the query for this attention mechanism. The second part becomes the query for that attention mechanism. And the third one becomes the query for yet another attention mechanism. That's multi-headed attention. Same with the keys, same with the values. And yeah, so now, now we're prepared. So what we want to do right here is we want to um, take a token. And remember, we now need to make a query. Let's say we want to produce the queries, right? So from this token, we need to produce a query vector, um, not only one, but number of heads, many query vectors from this token using some sort of uh, some sort of a linear layer, some sort of a linear function. So that's how we do it. They say, we have this matrix right here, the weight matrix D. And what the weight matrix D, the weight matrix D is, that has the same dimension here as the input and has as many, as many rows as we have different attention heads, right? So, what we're going to do is we're going to element wise multiply. And I would also add right here broadcast, right? Uh, broadcast. So if you've used NumPy or, or, or TensorFlow or PyTorch, you know the broadcasting operation. So the broadcasting is done. This is of dimension one right here. The broadcasting is done between this one and this S right here. 
this is going to be broadcast um, into this form right here. And you can see now, I mean, it's just an element-wise multiplication. So all that is, is like differently scaled versions of x in each dimension, right? So each row is essentially x a little bit shaky. So let's double shake x for the bottom row, okay? But this already is now a vector, one vector for each of the attention heads. Um, now, since element-wise multiply is probably not going to get us very far, uh, we also multiply this by an actual matrix, but instead of multiplying it by a D model times D model matrix, again, we go into a low rank, uh, low rank regime and simply say, okay, we have this number M and that's going to be a reduction on, reduction on our um, dimensionality. So this isn't D model by a D model matrix, which would probably be expensive. It's a D model by M matrix uh, and out comes this. So this is going to be the query vector for the first attention mechanism. Sorry, no, this is going to be the query vector for the first attention mechanism. And this is going to be the query vector for the second uh, attention head, head, I meant to say head. Okay. There is a thing like they don't just choose M arbitrarily. They in fact choose, I believe S times M equals uh, 2D model, right? That is, that is their, their formula. So they, if they split into S different heads, like let's, in this case, you see S is two, then M is three. And that has a very particular reason, namely, they say with this particular construction of the element wise multiply followed by the uh, multiplication by this weight matrix E, if, if we do it like this, then they can have a theorem. Where is the theorem? There's the theorem. The theorem essentially says that they can, um, they can represent an arbitrary permutation. So they say the minimum thing, the minimum thing that we have to be able to do is to take X and kind of permute it. So to place every single element of X in the output wherever we want. So essentially they say every part of X should be able to be forward propagated to all the attention heads or to any of the attention heads. And I have a theorem that says that if they constructed like this, any permutation is within the, um, the realm, is within possibilities for some matrices, for some weight matrices D and E. So that's kind of their justification of, well, we can represent all permutations, so it can't be too bad, right? Uh, yeah, I found a little bit of another way of you know seeing this if you look at this with the element wise multiply and so on it is easier to understand this as let me try to um, draw this up maybe over oops deep oops over here so if you think about it a little bit it is like so you have and you, you also look at the formula this formula right here um, you can clearly see that this is in fact 
i.e. matrix multiplication again. So you have, I would say you have, if you look at this as D times X times E, where X here is a matrix that has zeros, but X on, so on the diagonal, it's X, right? Um, which would give you, it would give you sort of a, so D is kind of this shape, then X is that shape, but only the diagonal is filled with X. And then E is like that shape. So, and D and E are fixed matrices. So you can see that uh, what the mul what this multiplicative layer is doing essentially is it um, it defines outputs. It defines outputs. So these are the number of outputs, and this is the dimensionality of the output. Um, and what you're able to do is is, is in some high higher dimensional space you're able to manipulate the coordinate system scaling a little bit, well, a little bit arbitrarily, but you cannot mix the individual dimension freely. Um, you can simply in that high dimensional space for a given mixing of dimensions, and that's what these matrices here do, for a given mixing of dimensions, for given linear projections from the low dimensional to the high dimensional space, um, you're able to manipulate the coordinate system. So if you, if you learn, you need to be able to find matrices D and E such that for arbitrary samples, the manipulation of the coordinate systems there makes sense. It's a little bit like, you know, like doing a PCA or something on a, on a data set, right? But it's just like during training right here. So yeah, I'm not sure, again, this is quite this is quite a loss. This is quite a trade-off with an actual uh, dense layer right here. Um, so, but it's interesting to see that it works, right? And again, this is only conceptual right here. Um, if you were to actually do this, you would lose all the benefits that you would lose all the benefits that you had. And again, you can see a little bit that the trick here isn't necessarily sparsity, but mostly low rank. This is mostly like a low rank um, function. Uh, yeah. Okay, so we have the multiplicative layer. We end up with the queries and the keys and the values for each attention head. And now we're going to, they essentially say, okay, we could do this for every one of the three things or, or, we simply do it once, which would give us this uh, property of, which would give us this property of the um, permutation being able. And then we can do something even cheaper if we want to get the individual matrices, right? And so the trade-off here is, well, here still every permutation was possible for the different matrices. So you, the Q could have different permutations than k then v or different functions here we're simply going to resort to one function one mixing um, or shuffling around of the dimension and then we're going to do something even cheaper which is this convolutional module and this convolutional module is also fairly simple to see so this output y right here and draw it again over here you have two um, vectors right here 
and they say it somewhere. They say the dimensionality somewhere. So you have two vectors, one per attention head. This is the output of the multiplicative layer. And um, presumably you would have those per token, right? We just looked at one token, but the next token, let me draw it in this color. The next token would also have them. And then the next token would also have uh, two of those. All right, let's do this. So what you'd get is a tensor uh, that has the sequence length L. It has the number of heads, what's S, I guess, uh, or number of modules. And it has M, which is that that essentially that low rank uh, dimensionality that the keys and queries and values live in. And they simply treat this as an image and then they run a convolution across it. So the convolution is going to be, let me see if I can draw this properly. The convolution is going to be um, across these two. So the filter is going to be like this and then in all the dimensions. So like this, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at drawing, but the filter essentially is going to be um, F in the dimension of S, F in the dimension of L and M uh, deep. And you have M filters of those. So you, you have an S by L by M tensor here and you transform it also to an S by L by M tensor. And essentially you can just think of this as a regular convolutional layer. And what the, again, what does the convolution go over? Remember that the multiplicative layer is simply works on a single token. It uh, mixes, it's kind of, it is able to shuffle around uh, the tokens dimensionalities a little bit uh, to permute them a little bit in the best case. And in all other cases, it essentially manipulates the scaling in a, in a high dimensional space. Um, and now with the convolutional layer, what we can do is we can bridge a little bit of information already between the tokens, even before we go into the attention module. So given that the convolution is across the L and the S dimension, it means that for the S dimension, information is able to be passed between neighboring attention heads. And for the L dimension, it means information is being able to be passed between neighboring tokens in the sequence. So that potentially gives some sort of a positionality to tokens because now that there's a notion of being close together. And also it gives maybe a little bit of a meaning to different attention heads because the attention heads uh, up until this point, they've just been kind of unordered independent things. And now they uh, hang together a little bit. This, all of this is sort of one of the things why the, the, the exact um, conclusions of this paper are going to be hard to assess, even if they do ablations, right? They, at the same time where they introduce efficiency, they also introduce entirely new ways of, of sort of doing things. They introduce new paths when it, where information can be passed from between things. And, um, so it's very hard to point down exactly where things go right and wrong. So this was the sparse or 
rather low dimensional um, attention module. Again, this is first one of these multiplicative layers, um, which is element-wise multiply followed by matrix multiplication uh, to a lower dimension. And then that is followed by these, um, by these convolutions, by these convolutional layers right here. So they call this whole thing a multconv. Right, if they combine all of this together, you can see right here, the blue with the shade is the average of the baselines. This is perplexity, so lower is presumably better. And you can see up to some noise, all of these things are fairly consistent, right? They, they follow the trajectory of the baselines quite neatly. Uh, some are even kind of a bit lower, this one right here. Though I'm not sure if there is a, there is exactly confusion because so the F right here is the filter size, right? And the S is the, the sparsity in the multiplicative layer. So essentially how many attention heads it splits stuff into. Um, and you can see right here, there's a conv, there's just a conv and there's just a mult, but the F is with the mult, which confuses me because the F is the filter size. So technically that should be with the conv, I guess. Um, if the authors are watching, please, please leave a comment um, if I'm wrong right here, other, I'm confused. In any case, uh, they show that the baseline transformer don't particularly do that much better in these NLP tasks or even do worse sometimes as you can see right here, though everything is pretty much within like a standard deviation um, than these scaling transformers. So this architecture that we've discussed right now is this scaling transformer. The last thing to do would be to add a sparse loss layer so they can replace the dense layer with a multiplicative layer similar to previous sections. This speeds up decoding time, say, sorry, they say, but may degrade perplexity. Results are in the appendix. So the, the loss layer might not, might be the last refuge of, of really dense uh, things to do. Um, but remember, due to the fact that in the feedforward layers, we sample but from this distribution uh, to really be sparse, or in fact, we might do argmax, right, during inference. Um, that's where the speed up comes from. During training, we actually have to forward propagate the softmax from time to time so that the training works. And that means that the benefits of sparsity are lost because if we don't hard sample ones and zeros, if we soft sample them, then all the rows are still activated and we need to track everything. And the same goes, I think, a little bit for batch inference. So if I have batch inference, even if I hard sample, right, different samples are going to have different um, activation patterns. And therefore, you know, with enough samples, all the things are going to be one somewhere. And therefore, I probably need to load the entire matrix right here from memory. I need to do the multiplication with the entire matrix possibly not for all the vectors, but also possibly something like a GPU probably wouldn't care 
that some stuff is zero. It's going to be as fast just to do all the things at the same time. But that might be a hardware limitation. Okay, so that was the scaling transformer. And now we're going to supercharge the scaling transformer, which makes it into a terraformer. I don't think there's any relation to the tool terraform, but you know, we're running out of names of formers. So um, yeah, this was the last refuge, I guess. So what they do is they use essentially, they use essentially the uh, architecture from the attention from reformer. So yes, we focus on the locality sensitive hashing attention from reformer. Was that reformer? I thought that was perform. I am confused by my by my own stuff. Reformer, yes. Da, 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 da. So they do two things, right? They um, have an architecture for long sequences. Uh, while integrating sparse attention layer into a scaling transformer, we notice the architecture is suboptimal. That's what I said at the beginning. Um, separating decoder self-attention and encoder decoder attention is not necessary anymore from the perspective of efficiency. We remove the encoder decoder attention. That I said that at the very beginning. Um, but just concatenate the encoder representation before the decoder tokens. So they replace the encoder decoder attention by essentially two attention blocks. That is that. Okay. I guess there's no performer in here, just the reformer. <laughs> so the LSH, I've done a video on this, um, locality sensitive hashing, uh, instead of full attention. So if you have really long sequences, um, you, as I said, you need to compute inner products between all pairs, between all pairs of, uh, of nodes right here of tokens. And this is cumbersome. There are various techniques to speed that up. One is LSH locality sensitive hashing, where you essentially create hash buckets, and then uh, you hash all the vectors all the vectors inside of it or all the um, inner products uh, become hashes and you look for essentially hash collisions that indicate where you want to calculate and check and a whole everything that's not a hash collision you don't need to check. So locality sensitive hashing has been long standing technique to uh, make inner product search in high dimensions or inner product computations and looking for the most close inner product in in among very many elements uh, very fast. So they borrow that from there. And then also they include the recurrent blocks. So recurrent blocks is um, no, that's later. First, it's the reversibility. All of this is just so similar. Um, reversibility is uh, also apparently in reformer. And what reversibility means, it's kind of this architecture right here. So again, we have two attention, and then one feed forward, right? The second attention replaces the encoder decoder attention. And reversible means that instead of having one strand, like one flow of forward propagating information, right, one flow of information, we have two. So there's I one, 
and I2 input one and input two. We have two information flows forward and then every function that's applied is applied to one flow and added to the other flow, right? This gives you this and this one right here is simply forward propagated as a residual connection essentially. And um, then x2 is taken. So this the flow of the actual function would be this right here, right? You can see this is the flow of hitting all the functions. And you can also see that we always have a signal for each of the functions, we always have a signal that travels without being touched by the function right here. Okay, so that signal right here, and this is the signal right here. And that makes the blocks reversible. And that means that um, I can, I don't have to keep activations in mind. This limits, this limits the capabilities uh, a lot. So non an example for non reversible would be well, this here is non reversible, because because unless I do like a linear function that goes from exactly the same dimension to the same dimension that is non degenerate. Unless I do that, I cannot possibly reconstruct the input right here, like the, the signal right here x from the output y, not even for a single one of those blocks, right, it's not possible for me, um, essentially to do this, or uh, yeah, so the, the reversibility changes that essentially means I can always reconstruct from the from these signals, I can reconstruct the intermediate activations. And therefore, I don't need to store them. Because in a normal neural network, as I forward propagate, I need to store a lot of intermediate stuff like right here and right here, in order to then during back propagation, I need those things. Um, because otherwise, I couldn't calculate the gradient. So I need to store the activation somewhere reversible networks, reversible uh, blocks do not have this property, they do not need to store because they're reversible. And they're made reversible, not by changing the individual modules like this or this, but by simply having this construction of the two strands of information, and the modules simply apply between the two. That's it's pretty smart architecture, but one has to say, it has very often significant trade offs, because these things being reversible, also brings some some properties like there are a lot of functions you cannot express anymore, because you need to keep everything reversible. So again, I think for the problems they particularly look at here, it might work, it might not work for all problems. I think that's a bit of a general thing in this um, this paper right here. It's more like we're, we're going to have to test for every new task we tackle or new challenges, new modalities, whether these things still hold. The last thing they build in is recurrence, and they say it's for generalization. Um, and that is if I understand it correctly, it is they use uh, simple recurrent units, not like an LSTM, because they say that would be too slow. So simple recurrent units, they're still fairly complicated. Like I've looked them up there. I didn't know what they were. They're still oh, they're still okay, complicated. So it's not just like a recurrent layer. It's actually you know, it has gates and so on, like a bit like GRUs or um, LSTM cells.
And if I understand correctly, this goes between, so as I said before, in the feed forward layer that every single token goes independently through that. If I understand this correctly, if I understand this correctly, this introduces a recurrent connection in between these. Did I, well, did I understand it correctly? Okay. Um, we also add a recurrence to the feed forward block of Terraformer. Recurrent layers allow information to propagate in time, even, a, even in a single decoder block. Okay, I think I understood that correctly. So within the feed forward block right here, there is a recurrent connection between the different tokens. Every token goes independently through that, but now we introduce actually a sort of dependence or a function that goes from the first token to the second to the third and so on, a recurrent, uh, small recurrent neural network. And again, they, one can only speculate why they have this in here. I mean, they say that this, the results on C4 are minimal, which is their language modeling uh, task. And they say the biggest benefits are when they do like these, uh, these toy tasks where you need to copy a decimal digit and then you can train at on 128 digits, but then you can test on 256. So it's over two times longer than seen in training. So they really make this point that it's for generalization, though it is very, very odd. Like this is a very odd addition. I, I can, I could get them until like, know here it says yeah okay you go for long sequences you know that that's cool long sequences are cool it's cool if your model can you know also do long sequences fine then memory efficiency okay you know so given that this is all sparse and low rank and so on you also might want uh, to use uh, less memory cool but then recurrence for th this is this is quite an odd choice I feel and it could be that it simply didn't work like, so they also say that the Terraformer here um, in sort of these tasks like summarization that it sort of beats or matches state of the art, um, matches much, much larger models and so on. It could, I can imagine that their numbers were slightly smaller, like slightly worse than kind of the baselines. And they were just looking for something to add to pump up those numbers. And this worked. If this is the case, if that's a big if, uh, again, it's very dangerous because it might work for these particular problems and not for others. If not, if this was really just like an idea they had and said, well, it'd be cool if that's in there, then, you know, good. Like I'm, I'm willing to, I'm willing to accept that as well. All right, so that was the Terraformer. And here you see, so the Terraformer now has over a 37x uh, speed up on, it's a considerably large model, but for this large model, uh, it requires less than 100 milliseconds uh, per token um, of decoding time while not degrading in performance too much. So that is, that is, I think, quite an achievement, even if it's only for particular types of tasks like these here, 
it is quite an achievement and um, it's a bit of a shame that the speed ups are only for like they're only so huge for the really huge models I guess it makes sense uh, because these effects are often compounding uh, you know so it for you and me with like uh, our regular old computers laptops it maybe won't make that much a difference uh, in terms of speed it might make a difference in terms of memory because of the reversibility but other than that yeah but it's it's good for like if you work if you want to work with larger models but you don't necessarily have to compute and you do inference uh, this might be something for you they specifically say that not everything has been tried yet they still don't do quantization which could yet deliver another speed up and there's also lots of things to do to actually speed up training um, maybe there's a way to get around this uh, gumball softmax need to forward propagate uh, the true softmax from time to time and so on so lots of engineering lots of kind of choices that are interleaved very hard to say where gain comes from but undeniable gain has been made in huge form and that's cool all right tell me what you think i'll see you next time bye bye